Welcome to Reading the Bible Together. I'm your host, Angela Smith. And this particular incident in 2 Samuel 11 is written to make a theological point because in the first part of 1 Samuel, we see David come on the scene. He's very blessed by God. God's protecting David. And we actually have the covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, which is the high point of the book and of David's life. And in that covenant, God promises David uh, and Israel that the Messiah would come from the line of David, the tribe of Judah, and that he would establish a kingdom that would endure forever. So it's a high point, but then this chapter, chapter 11, begins a gradual descent to the narrative that shows David in a different light. The author of Samuel ties David's difficulties in the whole rest of the book to his sins here in 2 Samuel 11. Unexpected. When you look in the lineage of Jesus, there are five women there that are unexpected. Women you wouldn't think would be in the lineage of the Messiah, but they're there. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be taking a look at their stories. This episode, we're going to be talking about Bathsheba. You see her in Jesus' lineage in Matthew 1, 6, and we find her story in 2 Samuel. My guest today is someone that might be familiar to you if you've been doing Reading the Bible together since the beginning, because I think she was the first one. She started the podcast when we studied the book of Daniel. My guest today is Professor Anna Rask Emerson. She's an assistant professor in the Biblical and Theological Studies Department at the University of Northwestern St. Paul, who is not our parent company, but is we're Northwestern Media and University. So she is from the university that is kind of our, our sister. She's across the street from us. Anna, thank you so much for being here. Thank Welcome. you. I'm really happy to be back. So I've been asking all my guests at the beginning, since we're talking about the lineage of Jesus, what's a favorite story you have from your own lineage and ancestry? Well, I actually had the pleasure this summer to bring my husband and my parents over to Sweden, and we got to basically go to my father's ancestral homeland, and we met some of his second cousins, I think, who still (laughs) live there, and we got to see the house my great, great grandparents built and we got to see where they're buried and it I I've really felt a sense of connection kind of to my ancestors and to see where we were from and it was it was really an eye-opening experience and I had a great time in Sweden and so it was it your dad's grandparents that came over my dad's grandfather uh came over from Sweden that's amazing and to think I mean such a brave thing to do to make that journey. I mean, there's always a reason why somebody's moving on to mm-hmm. something, but what a journey to make. Yes, and establishing his life here in Minnesota, and thank goodness had yeah. <laughs> four kids, and then that was my grandma, and then my dad came along. So it was really a, a great experience, and I would definitely go back. I was able to do a similar trip when I turned 40 oh, to Scotland, Ireland, yeah, and yeah. England, and going to some of those places where our ancestors are from, and it just gives you a sense of, like, the people on whose shoulders you're standing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and it's so, what I love about when we look at the lineage of Jesus, and, you know, if you've read the Gospel of Matthew and you've gone to the first chapter and thought, and just kind of skipped over the names, we're just trying to give some context to, to some of the names that, that are there. So today we're going to be talking about Bathsheba. And will you just give us a kind of an overview of her story? Yeah. So as you mentioned, Bathsheba is mentioned in Matthew 1, uh, we see that actually it says specifically King David and one of his sons, Solomon, uh, and then it says Solomon's mother. Now, it doesn't actually say Bathsheba. It says 
she was had been Uriah's wife. And I think Matthew likely wrote this to remind readers of what he did to Bathsheba and her husband in 2 Samuel 11. So basically the story goes, King David of Israel lusted after a woman named Bathsheba, had her brought to him, slept with her, and then tried to cover up his sin once he found out she was pregnant. Ultimately, he had her husband Uriah killed in battle. Now, this is a tough story to read. It's because it's filled with things like sexual assault, deceit, and murder. And although we learn about the importance of genuine repentance, which is met by God's forgiveness, David repents of his sin and God forgives him, forgives him there are still tragic consequences for David and his family because of his sin. However, God still blesses Bathsheba and honors her as she is the mother of the next king of Israel, Solomon, and is in the line of Jesus himself. What I think is amazing in all of the stories that we're looking at is that the phrase that keeps coming back to me is God can work with that. Absolutely. I mean, like we see the little boy bringing the fishes and the loaves to Jesus. You know, God is taking what Bathsheba has and like there's this brokenness that's mm-hmm. done to her mm-hmm. and, and God can still work with that. Yeah. And so hope is not lost. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So let's dig in to Bathsheba's story a little bit more. So I think it's important anytime we look at a specific passage that we need to keep it in context. And so this chapter is kind of right in the heart of um, Samuel, which originally was one book. We kind of separated out into two books right now. (laughs) These are two of my favorite books because they read like novels. Stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're so good. And what's amazing is that the book of Samuel, books of first and second Samuel are carefully arranged, arranged thematically. And this particular incident in second Samuel 11 is written to make a theological point because in the first part, of 1 Samuel, we see David come on the scene. He's very blessed by God. God's protecting David. And we actually have the covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, which is the high point of the book and of David's life. And in that covenant, God promises David uh, and Israel that the Messiah would come from the line of David, the tribe of Judah, and that he would establish an, a kingdom that would endure forever. So it's a high point, but then this chapter Chapter 11 begins a gradual descent of the narrative that shows David in a different light. The author of Samuel ties David's difficulties in the whole rest of the book to his sins here in 2 Samuel 11. Mm. So in the previous chapter, we see, because in the study guide, you have us kind of yeah, getting read under, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, behind to get mm-hmm. the, the setup of what happened. And so there's this war starting. And, and what struck me about the war was that David had sent not a spy, like he had sent an ambassador yeah. and people, it, I don't know if, what was driving them. I imagined it was fear of, no, this man's a spy. And, and so they are, they not punish them, but they, what's the word I'm looking for? They shave their beard to yeah. dishonor mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. and send them back. And so, and then this war starts. Yeah. So what, that's actually where we need to pick up then in second Samuel 11, we see that David sends out his commander, Joab, and the Israelite army to try and finish what they started in the previous chapter, which was about a year ago, kind of chronologically speaking. And we see that he sends Joab and his army to capture the city of the Ammonites and finish that war. Now, what is odd is that at the very beginning, we see that the narrator includes two kind of 
seemingly insignificant details. Uh, He provides the precise time of year, which was the springtime, which is typically when kings would go off to war, and David's decision to actually stay in Jerusalem, which is odd. (laughs) Yeah, and what do you think led for him to not do that? Because, I mean, this is the David of David and Goliath. Right. This is the David who God had his hand on him as Saul was, you know, hunting him down. Maybe he was tired. Who knows? Yeah, there's a suggestion maybe like his men wanted to protect him or something. Mm-hmm. Like, we'll go out in the battle, you stay. It, it's odd, but the narrator doesn't actually tell us why he stays home. The important point to remember is he sends his army out and he's home. That's mm-hmm. the, the start to the story. And the irony is that while David stays home, his army's protecting and defending Israel. And we're going to see that David, instead, the king, ends up abusing one of his subjects. Mm-hmm which is heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. And so, yeah, he's not off at war. And, you know, it says that he was taking a midday, after his midday nap. Mm-hmm. Resting was... while his army is out fighting. Yeah. yeah. It sets a stark contrast. And basically, you're right. He One evening, he gets up from bed, walking around on his roof, and he sees this woman bathing. And the woman's beautiful, and so he sends to find out about her. Now, is this common? Uh, bathing on the roof? I, I think so. If you look at kind of the uh, how the city was probably laid out, the the, temp, the palace was up on a hill, and the rest of the city, usually you'd have th- flat roofs so that you could use that as another part of your house. Okay. So she was probably just utilizing that part of another her house. Room. They bathed up there, and I get every indication from the text that she's not aware that someone can see her her, or is watching her. Yeah. He sends someone to find out who she is. And what we learn is that she is the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And basically, if you look at other parts in scripture, you realize that her father was one of David's mighty warriors and her grandfather was one of David's key advisors. And then, of course, her husband is also one of David's faithful fighting men, uh, one of his war. warriors. Right. And so verse four actually says, then he sent messengers to go get her because, yeah, he has conveniently learned her husband is currently fighting in his ar- army in Ammon on the other side of the Jordan River. Kind of opportune moment for him, I would say. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and one of the earlier conversations I had when we were talking about Tamar, she, Dr. Rebecca Ree talked about that the currency that women had, because we were, we were looking at Tamar and her prostituting herself, mm-hmm. and she was talking about the, that women didn't have rights and the only kind yeah. of, like, currency or the only influence they had was using their body. And so then... To see this thing that, because then David brings Bathsheba to the palace and has sex with her, just from her perspective. Like, it's so easy to read the story or to become familiar with the story and wash over. Like, this woman has to go to the king and do this thing that with that she should be doing with her husband and with yeah. the king. And there's no indication in the text that she could have stopped it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can maybe think about it, how could you refuse the king? How could you say no? So we don't get that information in the text, but I also don't see the text blaming her for any of this. No. mm -mm. So it's unfortunate, actually, in verse four, we see that it's a very stark description of his sin. He sends for Bathsheba, he takes her, and he lies with her. But there's a little phrase at the end of verse four that we can't miss because it foreshadows 
the rest of the story. And it says she's purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Basically, what she's doing is ritually cleansing herself because of menstruation. And this is actually prescribed in the law in Leviticus 15. Women were in a ritually unclean, impure state after menstruation. Now, that doesn't mean she's sinful, but she's ritually cleansing herself so she could participate in her community's social and religious life. So again, there's no indication that she was purposely seducing David and by kind of her culture's standards, I mean, she was doing what all women in that culture did. She was acting righteously yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. by purifying herself. So basically the narrator is setting up three facts. Bathsheba was not pregnant before intercourse with David. Mm. Intercourse took place after her period when she was fertile. And since Uriah is at war, he's not the father. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the story all changed then when she sends these few words back to David, which she doesn't talk much in this episode, but Mm -hmm. these are the words we hear are coming from her mouth. And she says, I am pregnant. Now, uh, one of the books I use in a class I teach called Women of the Bible is called Women of the Bible Speak Out. It's it's by Marlo Shalesky, and she provides a very insightful perspective into what the women of the Bible might be thinking. We don't get to hear a lot from them, but she writes, for example, David didn't know who Bathsheba was when he first saw her and desired her. He didn't know her name, her identity, her family situation, her character, anything about her. All he knew was that he wanted her. Her value in his eyes came solely from her sexual appeal. He viewed her as a sexual object, not as a human being loved and created by God. Mm. And I find that very impactful to Mm -hmm. try and step into her shoes, how she must have thought about this. Yeah. And Now that she has disclosed this to David, David comes up with a plan. He tries to cover his tracks. It's almost like he's doubling down (laughs) on, you know, I'm not going to try to make things right. I'm going to double down and try to try and fix this in my way. Yeah. So he sends word to his commander, Joab, to send him Uriah the Hittite back for war. And we hear that Uriah arrives in Jerusalem and David gives him the impression that, oh, he's genuinely concerned about how the war is going. We then see, he says, okay, Uriah, go back home. He actually says, go wash your feet. Uh, Go to your house, go wash your feet, which is likely a euphemism for sex. It seems that's how Uriah takes it. And basically what David's doing is he wants Uriah to spend a night at home with his wife to create the possibility that Uriah is the father of Bathsheba's child. Now, he also might want to trap Uriah in a legal technicality because soldiers on active duty were to abstain from sexual activity. So he might be trying to trap him as well. But David underestimates, yeah, David underestimates Uriah's character. Uriah refuses to go home. And he says, yeah, the Ark of the Covenant is out in the field. The uh, commanders, the army is out there. I'm not going to go home. Like all my brothers, all my brothers in arms. Right. I'm not going to go home and eat and drink and make love to your wife. I'm not going to do that. And so David doubles down again. He tries, he gets Uriah drunk, but Uriah is still not going to go home. And I have a great quote that I heard. Um, His name is Peter Ackroyd, and he writes, Uriah drunk is more pious than David sober. (laughs) And it's just like, yeah, that's exactly what's going on. Uriah is a man of character. Well, and it's it's such an interesting contrast, too, because David is working so hard to be unrighteous. Right. When And Uriah is just continually righteous Mm -hmm. in his actions. Absolutely. 
So since that plan failed, David comes up with another one, and this is far worse. I mean, the clock is ticking, right? He knows Bathsheba's nine-month pregnancy window doesn't give him a lot of time to make it look like Uriah is the child's father. So David actually writes Uriah's death warrant and sends it to Joab, ironically, in Uriah's own hands. And basically, Mm -hmm. it's saying, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest, basically banking on the fact that he will be killed when the enemy comes out. Well, and I thought it was interesting because it said, put Uriah out in front, and then mm-hmm. when the enemy comes, have everybody but Uriah step right. back. So Uriah will for sure like exactly. be dead and be killed. Exactly. But then, and he sort of follows the instructions that David give, gives him by putting him out in front, but it doesn't sound like, at least it didn't say that they pulled back. Because he said, put Uriah out there, then pull back, except for Uriah. They all stay out there with him, that, which I yeah, thought was well an interesting way yeah. for They all Joab. stayed with him? Yeah. yeah. Joab, the commander? Joab to fulfill his king's wishes, but also not... It almost felt a kind of honoring like a to your right. Yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 We're not going to leave you out be. there alone. I, yeah. I will put you in front, but yeah, I'm not going to... Yeah, he didn't gonna... technically disobey David. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very interesting. David is just so self-consumed and desperate to cover up his own sin. He's willing to even jeopardize his own army in this battle in order to save his own skin, Mm -hmm. basically. And even when Joab reports that Uriah is dead, David is so callous in how he responds to it. He's like, oh, basically, that's a soldier's fate. We all have to die sometime. It's, It's very callous, especially given the fact that Uriah was one of David's fighting men and that he was so honorable in the way that he conducted himself well and from a like legacy i mean we're looking at the lineage of jesus Mm -hmm. uriah came from uh, like honorable legacy to men that had been so important to david yeah yeah that's continued uh, yeah in the genealogy it's interesting that when we read verse 26 it specifically says when uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead Mm -hmm. We hear that when her time of mourning is over, David brings her to his house and she becomes his wife and bears him a son. But isn't it interesting? It could have just said Bathsheba or it could have in time said David's wife, but it specifically reminds us again, this was another man's wife. I just want to read another quote from Marlo Shaleski. She says, Lost in the way the story is told is the likelihood that Bathsheba might have had desires of her own, hopes and dreams for a future. She probably dreamed of having children and a big family once her husband came back from the battlefield that she would establish her home with the man that she loved. But David used his power as king for evil. Mm -hmm. And we see that he used it to serve himself, to feed his lust and indulge his pleasure and it was at the expense of Bathsheba, her husband, her hopes, her dreams. And so Bathsheba is taken as his wife now, and she bears him a son. And the narrative kind of stops there. And it seems as though David has succeeded in manipulating everyone and covering his, his sin. And if, if the narrative ended there, I would agree. But the very last part of verse 27 says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so we see this isn't the end of the story. David might have successfully tricked the people around him, but he didn't trick God. No. And I mean, are are we going to go on? Yeah, I've got more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, because the story, yeah, yeah, because the story still, I mean, it gets sadder, Mm -hmm. especially for Bathsheba to think she's taken by the king, her husband is killed. Right. And then there's another judgment that comes because of what David did. Exactly. And there's kind of a question for the readers going into chapter 12. Is God going to permit this abuse of power by the king? Well, we see the answer comes quickly. He, he's not going to permit this. He sends the prophet Nathan to speak on 
his behalf and correct David. And which we all need a Nathan in our life. There you go. You need oh correction. Yeah. yeah. So how does a prophet correct a king who's seemingly assumed absolute power? Mm-hmm. Well, he gets David to expose his own hypocrisy. And so we hear this story about the rich man who has all these animals and a poor man who only has one little lamb. And when a foreigner comes to town, the rich man takes that one little lamb of the poor man who basically was like a daughter to him and he kills it. And David is so indignant and outraged. I mean, he's a former shepherd. That would have been really upsetting to Mm -hmm. him. And we see that he's angry. And yet Nathan then turns to him and says, that's actually you. You are the man. Not to mention, again, just to clarify, Bathsheba is compared to this little lamb here. She, again, is not chastised for adultery or blamed for David's lust or fornication. She's compared to a little lamb. Mm. And that just really, again, struck me as beautiful that, again, God is upholding those who are abused and who are victimized. And so David condemns himself then, (laughs) realizing, oh, this is me. Uh, God had given him everything, but he wanted more, especially what was not rightfully his to have. He's the one who's held responsible. And there are consequences for sin. David chose the way of violence, and so God says, the sword of the Am- you use the sword of the Ammonites to sin, and now the sword will never depart from your dynasty. Basically, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, there will be violence in David's household as a result of this sin. These are the consequences of his sin. Well, And not only that, that... His son, that yes. his son will die. And his then, son that was born yeah. of Bathsheba. And then we see that the most immediate kind of outcome is that the first child of Bathsheba dies, which is, again, another heartbreak for her. It is. And what I think is interesting is that David realizes what he does, has a contrite heart, mm-hmm. is, you know, fasting and seeking God and asking him to save his son. And when he doesn't, when the son dies... Yeah. David, you know, and nobody can get him. Nobody mm-hmm. can get him to get up and and to eat. And and then when the son dies, uh, he gets up and he cleans himself and he eats. And and I think I don't have it in front of me. What they say to David when they ask him, like, why? They ask why? Yeah. yeah. Why would you do that now that the child has died? And he basically knows he can't bring that child back to life. Right. But he, while he was still alive, he ple- pleaded with the Lord for that. Uh, I just also think it's interesting. Uh, I encourage you in the study guide to compare how the former King Saul reacted when he was confronted with his sin mm-hmm. and how David reacts. And we actually hear David's heartfelt repentance in Psalm 51. That is his poem of repentance to the Lord. And mm-hmm. yes, God forgives. But again, it it doesn't mean there are no consequences for, for sin. That right. child dies and we see that David's life is needlessly complicated afterwards. The story concludes with hope. We actually see that God provides David and Bathsheba with another son who holds great symbolic significance. Uh, this son has, in essence, two names, a personal name and a throne name, Jedediah, which means loved by the Lord, and Solomon, which means peace. And not only does this signal that David is restored in his relationship with God, but we also see that through Solomon, who was one of Israel's greatest kings and led them into the golden age, God honors Bathsheba as his mother and, again, as within the lineage of Christ. And we also then see in verse 24 that she's finally referred to now as David's wife. 
In terms of application, I think this story invites us to consider that we are all capable of the dark behavior that David committed. None of us are immune from sin. It also reminds us of the tragic consequences of sin. And yet it also teaches us the importance of genuine repentance and God's forgiveness. And that we can be assured we'll be forgiven because of Jesus' atoning death on the cross. And lastly, a thought for those who have been abused, devalued, or objectified. I just wanted to leave us with this comment. As men and women, we're so much more than sexual objects. We're God's unique creation. We're made in his image. Our beauty, our worth, our value is not based on sex appeal, but God's love for us. And as Romans 5, 8 tells us, this is how God showed his love for us. He demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And there's nothing that can separate us from his love. There's nothing that's beyond his reach. We find our value and our worth in him alone. Anna, thank you so much. This was it was so good yeah. to have you back yeah, since Daniel. And thank you thank you for all of your for partnering with us and for all of this. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this conversation about Bathsheba, one of the unexpected women in the lineage of Jesus. If you want to get your hands on the study guide, you can do that at myfaithradio.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes. And next time we're going to talk about Jesus' mom. We're going to talk about the story of Mary. The Reading the Bible Together podcast is a production of Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Hosted, produced, and edited by Angela Smith. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, consider financially supporting Faith Radio. Find more information at myfaithradio.com.